you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. We'll get there in just a moment. This is a continuation of last week. Um, This is our second week in the series on the Incarnation. We just recited um, through the Heidelberg Catechism, plain statements made there about um, Christ being truly God, truly man. So last week, if you're here, you'll remember we were in Hebrews chapter 2. That sermon was titled, Born to Die. God became man so that in his humanity, he might taste death for his people. Um, As we consider, God was under no obligation to redeem sinners, so that's why it was all of grace, by grace alone. There's nothing external to God that obligated him to save sinners. Nothing external to him placed an obligation upon him, but God in his infinite mercy and grace. He determined to save sinners. In fact, he establishes an eternal Everlasting, an everlasting covenant of grace in which God promises to redeem his people and to be with his people as their God, as our God. And the blessings of this covenant were secured by the death of God the Son incarnate. So last week we considered the incarnation, so God becoming man from the standpoint of Christ's death. This week we'll be in John 1. And we'll focus on the word becoming flesh that we might see and know God. Jesus Christ was born that we might see and that we might know the invisible God. No one's ever seen God as we see down here in verse 18 of John 1. No one has ever seen God. But God has revealed himself to us. Jesus Christ was not born so that we might have a few days off from work, school. Jesus Christ was not born so that we can give gifts to one another. He was born that we might see and know God. You know, it's easy for us to trivialize this reality, to trivialize the reality that God became man. We either tip our hat to him and we acknowledge him We give maybe an hour here, hour there, maybe even a a day, but we tip our hat, we acknowledge him, we go about our business, we do our own thing. Or we trivialize this reality because we just want to know how this applies, how is this applicable to my life? Okay, incarnation, great, but tell me what to do, how to live, how does this apply to me? We give very little thought to the mystery of the incarnation because we want something practical. But God has not revealed himself to us through the incarnate son that we might tip our hat to him in acknowledgement to his birth or that he might just merely give us something practical to live by. Here's the hard truth. If God's revelation the Bible, the scriptures become nothing more than a practical guide for life, your Christianity is Christless. I I was reminded of this last night by some good wisdom from somebody who was not a believer, things we would say, but Christ was not there. It was just practical living. It was good stuff. But if Christ is not there, if it's just, if this is just so I can live, you've lost God. You've lost Christ. You've made the Bible about you. God did not reveal himself to us through the Son to teach us how to live better lives. He revealed himself to us through the Son that we might see and know him. And yes, this will have a profound impact upon our lives, upon how we live. But remember, God's revelation is the revelation of himself. All throughout Scripture, we learn that the ultimate blessing of our redemption. God has revealed this redemptive plan through Christ Jesus. He's revealed it all the way back to the garden, but God's ultimate goal, the ultimate blessing, I would say, of our redemption is that we get God. The ultimate blessing of the everlasting covenant of redemption is that God will dwell with us 
and we will be his people. And since the goal of our redemption is God, we ought to set our minds on God. We ought to set our minds on God as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. Think about a woman who is engaged to be married. It'd be crazy. You would think this is crazy if she said, you know what, I'm going to wait till I'm married to even consider my husband. No, what does she do? Her mind is, 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 is on her soon-to-be husband. She's thinking about him. She's waiting for that day because she can't wait to be with him. John Owen, he says this, since our future blessedness consists in being where he is, so being where God is, and beholding his glory, it's this future blessedness, where God is and beholding his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory and the revelation that is made in the gospel. I don't know why I did not look this up as I was reading the glory of Christ, but the last book that John Owen wrote in his life, the year that he died, was titled Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. That's the last book he wrote, The Glory of Christ, It shows us where his focus was. He's about to go into glory, but where is his mind? On the glory of God revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. He couldn't wait to be with God. So what did he do? He gave himself to the contemplation of God, of his glory revealed in Christ. You see, this is the essence of theology. Theology is simply the study of God. Oftentimes we emphasize its usefulness, its practicality, but theology is not a means to an end. Theology is the goal because God is the goal. Yes, theology is practical. For as we behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed. Beholding Christ is what transforms us. But even our transformation is not the goal. Our transformation allows us to behold more of his glory. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're transformed that we might enjoy God all the more. We're transformed by beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we might behold more glory. Right now, In this day and age, we're being prepared for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. And it's the Son of God who has revealed to us these unseen realities. In this age, we behold His glory by faith, one day we will behold this eternal weight of glory by sight. And so what better use of our time than to consider Jesus Christ as he's been revealed to us in the scriptures. And as we set our mind on things above where Christ is, these words of John Owen will most certainly ring true. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, and more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it. So my intent this morning is to go to John 1. We'll consider Christ. And my my hope and prayer for you is to, through the word, lift your eyes up from the earth, from creation, not that you're living out of it. We do, we live in it, and this will affect our lives, but to lift your eyes up to Christ, where he is at the right hand of the Father, to lift your eyes to be heavenly-minded instead of earthly-minded. And so what we will do, we'll walk through, not, not walk through every verse, but we'll look at John 1, 1 through 18, and we'll really ask three questions. Who is the word? That's the first question. Who is the word? Second question, what does it mean that the word became flesh? And then third, why does the word become flesh and dwell among 
man. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage, beginning in verse 1, and then we will pray. So John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, Who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning through the Son, by the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to your glorious truth. We're grateful. We come to you with thankful hearts because you could have left us in the dark. Yet you sent your son. The true light. You sent your son who is the true light into the world. And through the son who is full of the Holy Spirit. It's through him that sinners are brought into your blessed presence. And it's a wonderful blessing to be gathered before you this morning with your people, to be gathered on this Lord's day. We know we gain a taste of that heavenly future blessedness right here. While we are prone to veer off course while we are prone to desert you oh God we're grateful that you never desert your people your love never fails never ceases in spite of our weakness and our shortcomings oh help us to remain steadfast help us to put to death that is what is earthly in us and help us to continually rejoice in Christ and I pray the same for our brothers and sisters around the world we live in such tumultuous times the stability of this world seems to be unraveling There's a heightened sense of angst. There's wars being fought and there's rumors of more to come. Oh, help your church, oh God. That in the midst of these things, help us to be calm. Help us to avoid and reject 
any proclivity towards anxiety because of these things, because we're focused on these things or overly focused on these things. Help free us from anxiety. Help us to remember that you, O God, are governing all things according to the counsel of your will. And help us to remember that you will be glorified through it all. And know that we might glorify you this very day. I pray that you will be glorified and that Christ will be exalted and that your people will be edified through the preaching of your word. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here's a name for you. Faustus Socinus. Sure, that's not a household name. Very few of you probably are unfamiliar with that name and that's a good thing. Um, don't go buy his mural, whatever you would call it, I guess, uh, a picture, caricature of him. Don't go buy one, put it up in your house. You'll know why in just a second. Faustus Socinus was born in 1539. The first book he published was in 1562. It was titled An Explanation of the Prologue of the Book of the Gospel of John. The prologue of John is John 1, 1 through 18. So his first book. So it was on that. Anyway, so Faustus Socinus was greatly influenced by his uncle. His uncle was acquainted with men like John Calvin and Heinrich Bullinger. You say, great, sounds like he had some good influences in his life. But his uncle veered off from the Orthodox faith, began to question the doctrine of the Trinity. He began to question the Orthodox position that God is one being who consists of three persons. So God's one being, three persons. Another word for persons, just to teach you a word this morning. Another word for persons when referring to the Godhead is subsistence. So God is one being. There are three persons of the same essence. The same divine essence subsists, or you could say it exists in each person of the triune Godhead. So that is the doctrine that Socinus' uncle began to reject. And so since Socinus was greatly influenced by his uncle, in his first publication on the prologue of John, he claimed that only the Father is divine, not the Son. So he rejected the divine nature of the Son. Therefore, he rejected the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ is God. And he did so on the basis of human reasoning, not on the basis of divine revelation. According to Justin Holcomb, he and his followers rejected anything that could not be explained or understood by human reason, including all divine mystery. As such, he rejected the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Human reason, according to him, could not make sense of God becoming man. Therefore, he believed that Jesus was nothing but a man. Unique, yes, but a man nonetheless. Human reason prevented him from believing that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He believed that Jesus was a mere man, specially chosen by God, adopted and uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit. So Sinus completely misunderstood the person of Christ. And as one author explains, to misunderstand the person of Christ means one will likely also misunderstand the work of Christ. A Jesus who is not fully divine does not fully save. And that's exactly the case for Socinus. He rejected the divine nature of Christ and he rejected Christ's atoning work as a penal sacrifice. He denied the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins because he denied who Jesus is. Therefore, he painted the cross as a model of love. It's, and yes, the cross is a great demonstration of love, but if that's all the cross is, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no atonement being made. There's no imputation of righteousness because our sins still stand against us. Apart from the cross, there's no salvation. And apart from the incarnation, there is no cross. 
And that's what Socinus rejected because he elevated human reason. He rejected Scripture's teaching about Jesus because he elevated human reasoning as the final arbiter of truth. And while reason is a gift from God, we do not come to God through reason. We come to God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. This doesn't mean we kick reason to the curb. It's a gift from God. But this does mean that we must beware of the temptation to elevate reason as the final arbiter of truth. Because when we do so, we're actually elevating fallen, finite reasoning above perfect, infinite truth. In our pride, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We exchange that which has been revealed to us for lies and distortions of the truth when we elevate ourselves as the final arbiter of truth. And furthermore, when we elevate ourselves as the final arbiter of truth, we run the risk of rejecting divine mystery. Andy talked about it this morning. We've sung about that mystery this morning. And and, and this is dangerous because if we reject divine mystery... then we will inevitably reject the mystery of the incarnation. And if we reject the mystery of the incarnation, then we will inevitably reject the Christian faith. In the words of J. Gresham Machen, who can fathom the mystery of his person, but the mystery is a mystery in which a man or a woman can rest. So while the incarnation is a mystery to finite minds, one, it doesn't make it unreasonable. It's just a mystery. It's something we cannot cannot fully fathom because we can't fully fathom God. But it's also a mystery in which we can rejoice. For apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, there would be no salvation. And apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we would remain hardened in our sins, We'd remain left in the dark, having no hope and without God in the world. But thanks be to God that he has not left us in the dark. For as we see in verse 9 of John chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So God reveals the mystery to us. Not exhaustively, but he reveals the mystery to us. Through the light of the world, he reveals that which we must know through the word, through the true light. And the true light is the word. And so what we want to do now is consider who is this word? Who is the true light? You know the answer to this question, but who is the word that is the true light that shines light in the darkness? Well, first of all, before we get there, you sometimes have probably wondered, why is he called the Word? Why? Why Why is that? Because why isn't he just called the Son? Or why is he called the Word? Think of it like this. The Word. So what do our words do? They give expression to what's in our heart. Think about the Word gives expression to God's mind and reveals the heart of God to us. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the word is personified as the one who reveals the true nature of the living God. But this is not solely referring to an audible word or an audible voice here, for as we see in verse 1, the word was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. This echoes Genesis 1-1, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he create? By speaking. Through his word, through the Son. We see that he, if, if we were to read through Scripture, we'd see that. But here we read that in the beginning was the word. So this denotes his pre-existence. He was in the beginning before there was anything else. Before anything else existed, he was there. When nothing else existed, the word was because the word is. And why can we say this? Because as we see in the rest of verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word exists in a close relationship with God. Why? Because the Word is God. 
Now, there is a distinction between the word and God as used here in John chapter 1. This distinction is typical of the New Testament. We will frequently see God, the Father, spoken of as God. And then we'll see the Son. We'll see the Spirit. But oftentimes, the New Testament uses God to denote God, the Father. As such, the word here is distinguished from the Father. Yet in the very same sentence... Because he was with God, yet in the very same sentence, we see that he was God. The word of God is of the same essence as the Father. The word subsists. He he is of the one God. He is of the same being because there's only one God. So in the first verse of John chapter 1, we learn that the word is pre-existent. This means that he is before all things. And as we see in verse two, he was in the beginning with God. And then in verse three, all things were made through him. He creates, why? Because verse four, in him was life. Life is given to you and me. Life is a gift. It's inherent to God. It's inherent to the word. Therefore, he exists because it's his very nature to exist. So it's fitting for us to say he is The word is the great I am. So not only do we see his preexistence in verse one, we also see the distinct personhood of the word. He was with God. And then down in verse 14, we learn that the word is the only begotten son of God. If you have the ESV, it reads the only son from the father, but a better translation would be the only begotten of the father. So the fact that the son was begotten of the father has nothing to do with his existence in time. For the Son was eternally begotten of the Father. This has to do with his relationship to the Father. As Augustine says, one exists not as before the other, but as from the other. See, there was never a time when the Father was not the Father, and there was never a time when the Son was not the Son. And lastly, we see in verse 1 here that the Word was God. This does not mean that the Word was God and then stopped being God, because life is in Him. It is inherent to Him. It is His very nature to be. He can't be and then not be because it's His very nature to be because He is God. So the Word is God. The word of God is the eternal son of God. He is distinct from the father in personhood, but one with the father in essence. The son of God is just as much God as the father is God. Therefore, everything we say about God, we can say of the son. So when we say that God is immortal, we're saying the son is immortal. To be immortal, to be incapable of death. When we say that God is infinite, We're saying that the Son is infinite. To be infinite is to have no limit. And because he has no limits, God is everywhere, filling all things. And this is true of the Son. He is present everywhere, omnipresent, all presence. Furthermore, because he has no limits, he is all-powerful. This is true of the Son. There is no lack to his power. Let's say on one hand, that is why we ought to tremble when we think about the judgment of God. But on the other hand, that's why we ought to rejoice when we think about his redemption because there's no lack to his power. He can do all, he can do all his holy will. No lack in what he is able to do. But also because he has no limits, he's all-knowing. And this is true of the son. There is nothing that he does not Once again, that ought to terrify us when we think about the judgment of God, but it ought to cause us to rejoice when we think about the vindication, the redemption that God does know all. And one day he will vindicate all those who belong to him because he'll ultimately vindicate the glory of God, the Father. He will vindicate his Father. So everything that is true of God is true of the Son. He is true God just as is the Father and the Holy Spirit. However, there's something unique to the Son. It was the Son who became incarnate, not the Father. 
not the Holy Spirit. It was the Son who is the Word who became flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the preexistent eternal Word of God, who is God, became flesh. This is unique to the Son. He's the one who became flesh. So what does this mean? What does this mean that he became flesh? That's our second question. First question, who is the word? We can say the word is God. He is also distinct from God because he's the son, but he is God. And so he's distinct in personhood, I should say, from the father. So the word is God, distinct in person from the father because he is God the son. And now we're going to consider what is meant by him becoming flesh. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but in Hebrews, we saw that he became like us in every way, but without sin. That's the only difference. It's a big difference, but it's the only difference. He is truly human, but without sin. So when we say that he became flesh, we're saying he became like us, but without sin. Why can we say that? Because I thought we're sinners, right? Well, we are, but sin is not essential to our nature. Sin does not make you human. Yes, everyone born of Adam sins because we're sinners, but sin is not essential to our human nature. Sin belongs to our corrupted nature. Sin does not make us human. Just think about Adam and Eve. How were they created? Without sin, upright. They were uncorrupted until they sinned, until they chose to sin. So when we say that the word became flesh, we're saying that he became like us in every way, but he did not inherit our sin nature. As our confession states, he took upon himself the nature of man with all its essential characteristics and its common infirmities, sin accepted. But while he became like us in every way with the exception of sin, we must also realize that he did not give up what was already his as God. The eternal, pre-existent word of God did not cast off his deity when he became flesh. As the Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel notes, became does not always imply change. So the word, verse 14, became flesh. And while he became something, he did not change. He did not transform from one thing to another. He assumed something. He became something that he was not but he did not lose what was already his because God does not change. If God changed, he would not be God. Here's an earthly analogy. So just be careful to not draw too much or too many conclusions from this, but this might help you. So when Callan was born, I became a father. But when I became a father, I did not stop being a son of my father. I remain the son of my father. I did not change from a son to a father. Instead, I became a father. I became something without giving up that which already belonged to me. So when the word becomes flesh, when he assumes our likeness and becomes flesh, he does not cast off his deity. For God cannot stop being God. He is God. It is his essence. As Brandon Crow writes, the son thus becomes what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was. So let's ponder this for just a few more minutes. When Mary and Joseph, they looked down at their newborn baby, they saw a child that was just like them. He was human, flesh and blood, limited by a physical body, could only be in one place at one time. Being in a human body meant that he could grow and change. He would become hungry. He would thirst. He would suffer and eventually die. But that's not all. That's not all there was to this baby. Yes, this baby was truly human. He shared in our flesh and blood, but this baby who was wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in the manger, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. No other baby could do that. Born like us, 
yet did not stop being God and is therefore upholding the universe by the word of his power. So while his human nature was limited by a physical body, his divine nature was not. His divine nature is not confined to a body. Therefore, we can say that he is everywhere. So when Mary and Joseph look at their baby, they can say, he's right here. But we can also say, he's everywhere. Think about that for a moment. Right here, limited, but yet he is everywhere, filling all things because he's God. And because he's God, he's unchangeable. Right here, a baby who changes, who grows, but yet he is without change because he is God. Right here, a baby who hungers and thirsts, but because he is also God, he will never become hungry. He will never thirst in his divine nature. Right here, one who will suffer and who will eventually die, but as God, he cannot suffer. He cannot die. In him was life. That's why the world was made through him as we see in verse 10. This baby who was here is also the one through whom the world was created. So while he was born in our likeness, he is also very God, a very God. That's why John the Baptist says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In verses six through eight, We read that John was sent from God to bear witness about the light. John was not the light. Remember, the true light was coming into the world. The true light is the word, but John was sent to bear witness about the light. And then down in verse 15, we read, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If you ponder that statement, that is a fascinating statement. He who comes after me was before me. How is this true? If not for the God-man, the word becoming flesh in his humanity, he was younger than John. But according to the divine nature, he was pre-existent. He ranked before John because he was before John. This cannot be said of anyone else, but of the eternal Son of God who is incarnate deity. That's why Jesus, when he tells the people before Abraham was, I am, they understood what he meant. He said, I am God. When he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Well, you're 30-something you're years old. How, how could Abraham, how could you even know Abraham? Because he is the pre-existent God, word of God. So when Mary and Joseph, they looked down at their newborn baby, flesh and blood, they saw the Holy One of God in the flesh. They saw Emmanuel, God with us. So to become flesh means that he takes on our nature. Except sin, because sin is not essential to our nature, but he takes on our nature without losing anything that belonged to him as God. So now returning to verse 14, we read, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The son of God, the word took up residence with man, lived among man, I mean, he was in the world because he's God. He fills all things, but now he becomes flesh and dwells among man. But why? Why did he dwell among man? Well, this is our third question. First question, who is the word? The word is God. Second question, what does it mean that he became flesh? Well, he became man while remaining God. He's the God man. But third question, why does he become flesh and dwell among man? us among man? Well, the answer is right here. Right here in the prologue, he came to shine light in the darkness. In verse 4, we read that the life was the light of men. In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. 
And then in verse 9, the true light gives light to everyone. Apart from Christ, we are in the dark. We cannot see. We're blind. It's not that we just need a little bit of help to see. We're blind. We're in pitch black. We cannot see. We're in darkness. Therefore, the word of God came to shine light in the darkness. He's the true light that overcomes the darkness. Sure, you've been in a dark room. You stumble around, but then when the light comes on, you can see clearly. The darkness flees, it goes away. You once stumbled in the dark, but now the light comes, you're able to see. You see what's in front of you. You see clearly. And that's why the word of God became man. To shine light into the darkness. To show us what we cannot see, namely the glory of God. He is the light. And through him, the glory of God is revealed in the darkness. And look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Just think about this picture. The eternal God became flesh, and now, as the apostle John says, we have seen his glory. Now, I want you just to notice that this we in verse 14 is not everyone. We'll look at verses 10 and 11 and see that because there are many who rejected him. Verse 10, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. God has clearly revealed himself through creation. We could go to Romans 1, we would see this, but fallen man suppresses the truth about God. Therefore, the world does not know the one who made the world. And then in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So he was known by the Gentile world. He was rejected by the Jew. And we can say that there's some here today who know the truth but suppress the truth, who reject him because you don't want him. You don't want Christ. But just know this. He will not reject you if you come to him. If you receive him by believing in his name, you will become children of God. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This refers to our adoption as God's children. And as we see in verse 13, the children of God are those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the children of God, we see are those who believe in him, but why do they believe in him? Why do we believe in him? Because we've been born again. Been born of the Spirit. And now through the Son, we become sons of God. As Augustine says, we were not born of God in the manner in which the only begotten was born of him. We were adopted by his grace. For he, the only begotten, came to loose the sins in which we were entangled. This is why we suppress. This is why we reject, because we're entangled by our sin. So he came to loose the sins in which we were entangled and whose burden hindered our adoption. Those whom he wished to make brethren to himself, he loosed himself and made joint heirs. Or he himself loosed and he made us joint heirs. So the we in verse 14, who have seen his glory, refers to those who have been born again, those who have been born of the Spirit. It's these who have received the Son, who believed in the Son, and who have been adopted as children of God. That's who's seen the glory of Christ, which, as we see in the rest of the verse, is the glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's why he came to shine light. As Athanasius says, our eyes were downward. Our eyes were beholding earthly things. Our eyes were focused on that which has been made, but he has come to lift up our eyes that we might see and behold the glory of God. True glory, 
not glory that is fading. And as we see at the end of verse 14, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, he is full of grace and truth. The word who became flesh is full of grace, not lacking in grace. Because he's God, he is full of grace. And not only is he full of grace, but he's also full of truth. He's not lacking in truth. Because the fullness of deity dwells in him. By grace, he reveals the truth about God to us. He knows God perfectly. Because he is God. And by grace, he makes God known to us. He doesn't merely make propositional statements about God known to us. He makes the true God known to us. He brings us to the Father by showing us the Father. It's not that he came solely as a prophet to deliver accurate statements about God. He does that, yes. But because he is God, he shows us God. So in Christ, we see perfection personified. In Christ, we see righteousness personified. He is everything good, both inside and out. For this reason, when we look at him, we actually see ourselves more clearly. He shines light into the darkness by merely dwelling among man as God in the flesh. That's why many saw him and hated him. Because they saw themselves rightly, but others saw him and loved him because they knew that he was the only perfect savior for sinners. So when we see Christ, see God, the word and the flesh, we actually see ourselves more clearly. That's why it is unhelpful for us to compare ourselves to one another. You and I are not the standard or bad standards But when we behold Christ, we see the standard. And we see that we do not measure up to that standard. We're not inherently righteous. He is. And we see his righteousness and his perfect keeping of the law. In verse 17, we read that the law was given through Moses. Moses was the mediator of God's law. And as we learn from the Gospels, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to do what? To fulfill it. So when we consider Christ in light of the law, his perfection shines forth all the more. And so when we consider his life in light of his teaching regarding the law, we're reminded and we learn, we actually learn this, that God's righteous requirements refer not only to our outward actions, but down to our heart, our inner man. God's righteous requirements are not just doing the right thing. It's inside out. I I sometimes will will ask people, imagine my my neighbor is, is a blind lady and I help her across the street, but I don't want to. Is that righteous? I'm doing the right thing, but I don't want to do it. Is that true righteousness? It's a good act. It's a helpful act, right? But that's not true righteousness because my heart is not right. But with Christ, we see the embodiment of righteousness because he not only does right, but he is right. It's not that he's compelled by something external to him to do right. He does right. Why? Because he is righteous and it flows out of him genuinely. So Christ Jesus is the embodiment of righteousness. He does not come to do away with God's standard. Instead, he comes to show us one who truly upholds that standard. Why? Because he is God. And therefore, he shows us the righteous God in the flesh. And while he shows us perfect righteousness, we can be grateful that he did not come to impose a new law to place us in 
bondage. Yes, he exposes the full intent of the law all the way down to our heart's compliance, but he did not come to enslave us to a new law, a harsher law. When we think about Matthew 5, in light of the Old Testament law, Jesus actually reveals how, how much stricter God's righteous requirements are, but Jesus didn't come to enslave us to some new strict standard and say, you know what, just live up to this, do a little bit more. You've actually, you know what you thought you did was good, but you've got to do harder, you've got to try harder. You've got to do more. That's not what Jesus did. Verse 17, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law says, do this and live. Keep the law perfectly and you will live. Who can do this? I mean, Jesus exposes that. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, ah, it's not just what I do, it's what's in my heart. Oh, wait a minute, I can't live up to this. Does that mean that he actually came to impose a stricter law? No. You know what he does? He says, I have done this that you might live. He says, done. It is finished. I've done in your place what you could not do. The law makes demands. Christ pours out grace upon grace. So thank God that grace and truth come through Christ Jesus. Now coming to Christ does not mean we now live however we want and sin all the more. That means we've misunderstood and we've presumed upon his grace. If that is you, you need to examine yourself. If you are loving sin, you're not loving Christ. Because Christ is righteousness. He is righteous. You will love Christ and his righteousness, not just the idea of him, not just the idea of being free from the consequence of sin. The law makes demands. Do this, live. Christ pours out grace upon grace. Just thank God that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we would remain in our sins. We would have no hope and we would be strangers and aliens to the household of God. Apart from Christ, we would remain estranged from the blessed presence of God. And we wouldn't even know it. But thanks be to God, the word became flesh that we might see and know God. As we learn from the scriptures, we were created by God for God. But when we sinned in Adam, all of us became enemies of our maker. Yet Christ comes to help us in our weakness. As Augustine writes, God's son, assuming humanity without destroying his divinity, established and founded this faith that there might be a way for man to man's God through a God-man. For this is the mediator between God and men the man, Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, the Father sent the Son that we might return to God. He didn't merely come to make evildoers do good. He didn't come for our moral improvement. Yes, life in Him will produce fruit. We will pursue lives of godliness. But He came so that we might see and know God. God did not become flesh just so we can be better versions of ourselves, live more upright lives. He didn't become flesh just so we can escape hell and go to heaven. Yes, there are benefits. There's outworkings of the new life we have, but these things are not the main thing. When we focus on escaping hell, just becoming a better person, we're focusing on the icing. We're focusing on the, the cherry on top, so to speak. We're not actually looking at the substance. Remember, God is the goal of our creation. For this reason, God became flesh that we might see and know the invisible God. As we see in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. 
God is spirit. Yes, you might say, what about Moses? Well, Moses caught a glimpse of his glory as he's passing by, but he doesn't see God. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. Therefore, man cannot see God. Furthermore, frail humanity cannot behold imperishable glory. But in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God. In the words of Athanasius, being human, they'll be able to know the Father more speedily and directly by a body corresponding to theirs and the divine works affected through it, considering that the things done by him are not human, but the works of God. It's through the Son that we see God. And it's through the Son that God has made himself known. Look at the rest of verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the Son, who is the Word, who is God, and He has made God known to us. The Son is at the Father's side. He makes the Father known. One commentator I read said this, only one who fully knows the Father can make Him fully known. It's only through Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God becoming flesh, that we can know the Father who sent Him. As Jesus says in John 14, 7, which which Craig read from earlier, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, when he said this, one of his disciples was confused and he asked, show us the father. And Jesus replies and says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Why can Jesus say this? Because he is one with the father. And because Jesus is one with the Father, the Father is made known through him. So how do we know the Father? Well, we look to Christ, who is full of the Spirit. That's how we know God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not that we meet Jesus or meet God in an abstract way. It's in the face of Jesus Christ that we meet the triune God. So why does the word of God become flesh? That we might see and know God. Not in an abstract way, but personally. That we might see and truly know God. The invisible God. The one who has not been seen. The one who transcends all. The one who is above all. Makes himself known to us. Those who have rejected him, sinned against him. He makes himself known to us through Jesus Christ. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, flesh and blood, without losing anything that is already his. So when we consider these truths that are in John 1 in this prologue, these things ought to shake us to the core. These verses are not here for us to stand over and critique, to be judged, to to determine, does human reason validate these things? We're not here to judge that. That's That's not why God has revealed himself to us through these propositional statements that are here. These verses have been given to us to stir us up to reverence and awe. For here we see God becoming man that he might bring us to God. In this passage, we're introduced to the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He's the perfect mediator between God and man. He alone takes us to God for he is God. Remember the goal of the Christian faith. It's not moral improvement. It's not even the destruction of our idols. The goal of the Christian life is God. And one day we will see him by sight. We will be with him face to face. But now we behold him by faith. And as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as you do so by faith, you will be transformed. You will be morally improved because you will begin to love what Jesus loves. 
And as you behold the glory of Christ, your idols will be exposed for what they really are. And as a result, you'll grow in your capacity to behold more glory. Athanasius, I know I've quoted him quite a few times. I've quoted a lot of guys from the fourth century here, him and Augustine. But Athanasius taught that when the word of God appeared in a body and made known to us his own father, the deceit of the demons disappears and ceases. So when the word of God appeared in the body, when he made known the father, the deceit of the demons disappears and ceases while looking to the true God. And we abandon idols and henceforth recognize the true God. So as we look to him, as we see him, we see God. And so the deceit vanishes, darkness flees. The idols become exposed for foolishness, meaningless things. And we see his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father made known to us. So it's my prayer that the incarnation will not be lost on you. It's my prayer that familiarity will not breed indifference. For in the incarnation, you will find a rich, inexhaustible source of spiritual nourishment. Therefore, I encourage you to consider Christ, to consider the word of God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, not just giving a hat tip, not saying, just give me something practical. Meditate upon him. Go to him through the word, through prayer. Talk about him. Go and tell about him because apart from him, you would not know God. Apart from him, there would be no life in you that would be anything past this age. Apart from Christ, we would all die in our sins without hope, remaining in the darkness. So in closing, I just want to remind everyone here, most of you know this, familiar with this, but we're living in between the two comings of Christ. First coming was the incarnation of the Son of God. The Word became flesh, came to seek and save that which had been lost. Came to give His life as a ransom for many, came to fulfill all righteousness, that by his righteousness we might find life. And he came that we might see the invisible God. That was the first coming. While he came once, we're awaiting his return. Honestly, we don't know when that will be. The only thing we can say is that today is closer than his coming was yesterday. But when he returns, it will not be as a babe in a manger. When God returns... When Christ returns, when the Son returns, His glory will not be veiled. For everyone will see His glory as He comes for His elect and as He comes to judge all who refuse Him. So it's my prayer that everyone here will be able to say with expectant hearts, Come, Lord Jesus. I hope we'll all say this. I hope we can all say this because we long to see the glorious splendor of God by sight. A glory that was veiled in the flesh, veiled in incarnate deity, but a glory that one day will shine so brightly that the sun and the moon will be irrelevant. If not for the first coming, the next coming would only be in judgment. But because the word became flesh, those who receive him can look forward to his return with eager expectation. Therefore, we rejoice in his birth and we eagerly await his return. But for those of you who are refusing him, let this be a warning today that he will come back in fierce judgment. He will not return as a babe in a manger. So do not refuse him who calls you to himself this day. Come to him by faith. Call upon his name and he will not turn you away. He is the perfect savior of sinners. Jesus Christ. 
God, the Son incarnate who became man, that we might have life in Him. Look to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Christ's name. By the power of your Spirit, and we stand here as those who have nothing to offer apart from you. We have nothing to stand before you and say, I've done this, I did that. I learned this, I was wise, I was strong. Our wisdom and our strength are all put to shame in you. By sending your son to be born in a manger, to die on a cross to show us your glory, to bring us to glory. And one day we will finally see that glory face to face. Oh, I pray that our heart's desire would be for you, O oh God. I pray that we would not be distracted by the things of this world. I pray that we can enjoy the season, enjoy family, and enjoy one another, but that we would not lose sight of you. Help us to see you more clearly. Help our eyes to be lifted up toward heaven, to where Christ is, where you are, O oh God. Oh, help us to see our vain idols for what they really are. Help us to see the, 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 the heinousness of our sin. Oh, that we might not desire these things anymore because we desire that which belongs to you, oh God. So help us to see Christ more clearly that we might behold more of your glory. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name.